Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. What makes a great sports dynasty a great sports dynasty? We typically think it's the result of amazing talent or coaching, but my guest today argues that it all comes down to the often quiet, understated leadership of a team captain. His name is Sam Walker, and he's the author of the book, The Captain Class, The Hidden Force That Creates the World's Greatest Teams. Today on the show, Sam and I discuss his quest to uncover what makes great teams great and the unlikely answer he came up with. We then discuss the traits Sam found in the great team captains of sports history, some of them you'd expect to see on the list of you know great leadership, including doggedness and humility, but a few of them, like the willingness to push the limits of the rules and engage in conflict with the players and the coach, might surprise you. Throughout the conversation, Sam shares insights on how leaders from all fields can apply these lessons in the teams they play on and work with. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash captain class. And Sam joins me now via Skype. Sam Walker. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Brett. Great to be here. So you got a book out, The Captain Class, The Hidden Forces That Creates the World's Greatest Teams. I'm curious, what got you looking into what makes great teams great teams? We're talking about team sports here, and it's all team sports, right? Yeah, all team sports. Yeah. It was an old obsession. I mean, I think it really started when I was a kid, and I played on this Little League team when I was 11 or something. And, you know, we were kind of a crappy group. We won like maybe half our games usually, but one year for some reason, we just won and we kept winning and winning and winning. Same kids, no palpable difference. And I thought this was great. You know, I loved it and I thought it would happen again. You know, I figured it was something that happened once in a while, but that was the only great team I ever played on. And, you know, I, I never had that experience again. So it was a little bit of an obsession, but you know, it really started when I was covering sports for the Wall Street Journal, and I had this ridiculous job where I just kind of flew around and went to cover championships and big events. So I, I had a chance to see some of the greatest teams of, of the century. I mean, the Patriots, the Chicago Bulls, the Spurs, the Yankees in the 2000s. And, you know, I really got this this up-close look at these teams. And something was weird, though. Something was really off. I knew how hard it was for teams to be great. But what I found was that you know, when I asked these players on these teams, why? Just why is your team so much better than every other team? You know, it was weird. They didn't really have much of an answer. They kind of shrugged off the question. They're just kind of like, you know, they hadn't really given it a lot of thought. They didn't really think it was magical or special or really that different. And Tom Brady was the one who put it best when I asked him this question. He said, 
what he always says, he says, you do your job so that everyone else can do their job. And there's really no big secret to it. And I just was like, that seems weird because it's so rare to have a great team. Now, the other side of it was really strange, though, because if you asked a player, you know, on a team that had underperformed or was really lousy, why the team had wasn't good. I mean, it's like pull up a chair. You know, it's 30 minutes of like this and that. And, and I realized that it was it was even though they're really rare, these dynasties were different in that it seemed natural to people. It seemed natural to be part of a great collective effort. Like It seemed like it was just it working the way it should, whereas the difficult, the hard thing seemed to be being on a bad team. And it just didn't make sense to me, so I thought I would try to see if Tom Brady was right. You know, Is there something simple? Is there some element is there something that just allows a group of people a collective effort to work seamlessly and if i if if it exists can i identify it all right that's that's a uh, that's a bold ambitious uh goal there um so, so so to do this you did some like data trying like you did some crunching here you had to figure out okay let's take a look at all the greatest teams in sports history and it's not just football basketball baseball you're looking at obscure sports here in America, like handball or field hockey. So how did you go about compiling that list of great teams? What were the criteria? Well, there's a there's an easy, I mean, there are ways to do this. There are other ways to do this. And I went out and looked at all the other lists of great teams I could find. And some of them were based on data and analysis, but they just weren't complete. And I realized there's no way to compare most sports, every sport, because they're also different. Some of them have playoffs and championships. Some only really compete every four years. I mean, it's, it's just really hard to do that. So I realized two things. One, I wanted to study. I just wanted to find the freaks. I just wanted to go to find the, the most incredible freakish performances ever. And a lot of that was how you define freakish performance. And so I had to define it. And my definition was that it had to be something that lasted. I wanted to see, I wanted to find a culture of greatness that, that sustained itself. So I didn't set the bar that high. I said four years. You know, a team had to have dominated for four years. So that was the first thing. You know, and then I said, all right, this team had to have played at the highest level of competition in the world. So, you know, college sports in the U.S. fell out, you know, of that and and a lot of other sports. And, you know, I wanted to make sure they had actually played against the best teams of the time. So a lot of teams from, you know, early soccer teams in, in Europe fell out because they just didn't play each other with any regularity. So that eliminated a lot of teams. Now, the last filter was the toughest, which was that they had to have done something unique. I mean, if you're going to say you're the best team of all time, you better be the best team in the history of your sport in some tangible way. So you either had to win, have won like a a string of championships or, you know, a a number of consecutive games or have some record for longevity that had never been matched. So that was the last criteria. Now, there were 25,000 teams that I looked at, and this is every sport in in the world since the 1880s and 37 different categories of sport. And after eliminating all the teams that didn't qualify, there were only 17 left. That was it. And it was 16 when the when the hardcover came out. Now it's 17 because the Patriots squeaked in this year. But that was it. And and that was that was it. These are the these are not necessarily the greatest teams of all time. No one can settle that argument. But what I had was what I believe to be a pure sample. I mean, these are all freak teams. They are there's no question about their greatness. And that was what I wanted to use. That was the sample study I wanted to use to see what they had in common. 
All right, so the Patriots just squeaked on there. What are some of the other teams' examples that made the list? Well, there were some that you might suspect. I mean, if you know basketball, of course, the Boston Celtics, you know, the Bill Russell Celtics from, you know, from 57 to 69, 11 titles in 13 years, right? They're on there. The Steelers from the 1970s, four Super Bowls in six years. The Montreal Canadiens, who won five straight cups in the 50s. They're on there. The Spurs are on there, you know, for the incomparable 19-year, you know, playoff straight playoff appearances and five titles. So some of them were, but then some of them were not that familiar. I mean, there were some teams I'd never heard of. And one of my favorites was the Cuban women's volleyball team from the 1990s. And I didn't know nothing about them, but they are the greatest Olympic team of all time. And they won, they did not lose a, a match of consequence in 10 years. And they beat up on these huge countries, you know, coming from a very small, you know, kind of poor politically repressed country, you know, that that had no real great tradition of volleyball anyway. So it was teams like that. They were a combination of greats and uh, unknowns. It's what made it really appealing to me. All right, well, maybe we'll talk about those gals here in a bit. But so you had these teams. How did you, so how did you figure out like what, like how did you decide like what was the determining factor? Like was it talent? Was it coaching? Was it, how did you decide, you know, suss that stuff out? Yeah, that was a rabbit hole. I mean, I, I had the list of teams and and others that were close, and I started just breaking them down. And, and what I decided was, look, I'm just going to go with my own prejudices, right? I mean, the first thing I thought it would be would be talent. They just had greater talent than other teams. And I looked at it and realized that actually a fair number, if not a majority of these teams did not have outstanding talent. They had, They were talented, but they weren't incredible. So that could, that wasn't the common element. And the next thing I thought was, you know, maybe it was tactics. You know, some of these teams were really tactically advanced, like this Hungarian soccer team from the 50s. I mean, they were geniuses tactically, but then some of them weren't. You know, the Steelers in the 70s weren't that remarkable tactically, so that wasn't it. And then I thought maybe money, but no, in fact, the majority of these teams had, you know, average money or even came from poor, poor countries in international sports. And I thought it would be coaching. I mean, really, Coaching was the thing I thought we were going to default to, but that was one of the biggest surprises, which is when you look at these teams, when they started their runs, all but one of these coaches was either someone with a lousy track record who'd been fired from a previous job or had very little coaching experience, or in some cases, no experience at all. You know, and a couple of these teams actually changed coaches during their winning streaks and continued winning. So it's not that coaches aren't important, but they weren't the one factor. So that's weird. So you, the, that leads us to captains, like the leaders of a team. So how did so that, if that this is basically process elimination? But I thought it was interesting. Like, what makes the difference between, like, say, a captain and a coach? Because coaches, you know, I guess, a figurehead, a leader. Captains are also leaders, so they're both leaders. But what makes the difference where it's like a team captain is the one that has more influence than a coach? Well, that's that was that took so much time to really nail down, and I started that process, when I saw that it was the captains, and it was clearly the captains, I mean, it was a clear pattern. You know, all, these teams all, it, the, the streaks were defined almost precisely in some cases by the, by the presence of that captain over and over and over again, wherever you looked. And what I did originally, I, I wanted to figure this relationship out. So I started with Vince Lombardi, who was the best coach that I could think of. And I went out and met his former captain, defensive captain, Willie Davis, who's in his 80s now and lives in L.A., you know, and, and talked to him. And, and I talked to um, Alex Ferguson, the great coach in the U.K., the soccer coaches, the, the rest of the world, Vince Lombardi, right? And, and I talked to a lot of people about this and realized that, you know, it's 
we have a kind of skewed view, not just of what captains do, but also what coaches do. And what I realized is that if you looked at all of these great coaches that we revere, whether it's Belichick or, or Popovich or Alex Ferguson um, or even Phil Jackson, if you look at their peak periods of success, what you see in every single case was that they had a captain just like this. And it was that partnership between them. And there's a lot of push and pull. If you look at those relationships, it's not boss-employee. It's really an equal partnership. Yeah, I wrote about recently about Steve Kerr, who's doing the same thing, sharing power with his players and especially his player leaders. It's a partnership. And it's like a meeting of the minds. And you have to be willing to let your captain be right and, and to let his view prevail sometimes. So it's not the typical relationship we think of with coaches, but they're a huge factor. But it's really, it really comes down to how they relate to the leader of the players. Right. So I guess you found after looking at the analysis that whenever these teams had a lot of success, like that per, that player, that leader was on the team when that happened. And I guess when they left, did like the things just sort of crumble and they just fell apart? Yeah. I mean, you know, in some cases it was two weeks after their departure, you know, in some cases it was the next season or, you know, a couple seasons later, but you know, the decline, the declines are pretty sudden. I mean, if you look at the overlay, it's really stark, but here's the thing. This is, this is the important point, which is, you know, I'm not saying that all you need is a great captain to be successful. Teams need a lot of things. You got to have talent. You got to have good techs. You got to have a coach. You got to have a combination of things that are already in place. The way I like to describe it is like the captain is the verb in the sentence, right? I mean, the adjectives, the nouns, everything else might be more colorful and more important to what you remember and to why the sentence works, but it doesn't work without a verb. You know, it got it, it's that thing that gives it its forward motion. So there are a million combinations to greatness, but the only thing that has to be there is the internal player leadership. Right. So it's necessary, but not sufficient. Right. right. Exactly. So what are some examples of these great captains? So you mentioned Bill Russell, the Celtics. I'm guessing Tom Brady with the Patriots. Yeah. All right. Sure. Brady fits right in. And, and you know, the Patriots also have some great defensive captains, too, and Teddy Bruschi and Rodney Harrison. And, and, you know, they had a kind of a knack for finding them on both sides of the ball. But, yeah, the captains were funny. There were some that you would think of, you know, Jack Lambert of the Steelers and, and Maurice Richard and but then there were players on great teams, even teams I had I had covered, like Barcelona, that I didn't know anything about. And Carlos Puyol was the captain of that team. And if you see, if you know anything about Puyol, he doesn't not he's not the best player on the team. He's a strange looking guy. He's the last person you would think of on a team that had Messi, you know. But over and over, you saw this pattern, and a lot of them were really unheralded people. And in fact, these captains were nothing like what I would have imagined. I mean, I had these. I didn't really think about leadership much before I wrote this book because I, I didn't think it was going to end up there. But I had this impression that the leader of the team was almost inherently the best player, the person who made the biggest contribution. I thought of them as being celebrities, you know, with, with this magnetism and this sort of high emotion they played with. I thought of them as great, just, just incredible sportsmanship and very diplomatic, good at diffusing conflicts inside the team. I, I, I thought of them as these larger-than-life people with obvious talent, but these captains were anything but. In fact, they were, they were not stars, most of them. They were role players. They were not charismatic. They stayed in the shadows. They did not care about personal accolades, and they could be really difficult to manage. I mean, they pushed back. They created conflict inside the teams on a lot of occasions, and they just – a lot of those things were things I thought would disqualify someone from leadership. I started to realize that we've, we really just don't – have a good grasp of 
what a leader actually does inside a successful team, not just a successful team, but a team that sustains that excellence over time. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people think, oh, Michael Jordan would have been one of the great captains, but because he's, you know, he has all those sort of stereotypical traits that we think of a great leader, charismatic, talented, et cetera. But like, you kind of came to the conclusion like, no, based on some of the criteria, which we'll talk about here in a bit, he wasn't, he wasn't a, a great captain. He was not. In fact, he was, he was really not a good leader at all. And he wasn't the leader of the team. So the, the, the Bulls blew me away because I had the same impression of, of Jordan. And he was a co-captain of that team. But if you look back, it's just unbelievable. Look at the day. It was in 1990, early in the season, and the Bulls got off to a rough start. You know, at that point, Phil Jackson was a second-year coach. The Bulls had never won a title. Everyone was saying Michael Jordan was going to be the greatest NBA player who never won a championship. That was the knock on him. And in the after a really rough start, Phil Jackson very quietly announced that Bill Cartwright was going to be the co-captain of the Bulls along with Jordan. And this was shocking to people because Jordan hated Cartwright and it openly mocked him because they had traded his friend Charles Oakley to pick up Cartwright. Cartwright's not charismatic, bad knees, kind of a brooding guy, you know, didn't care about being getting any recognition. But the minute he did that, the problem on the Bulls was that no one wanted to buy into Michael Ball. All these kids, you know, on the team just didn't resented having to just play a game that completely revolved around one player. Cartwright was the mentor. He was the coach. They called him Teach. He was the guy who got everyone on board with this idea of playing this way. And the minute they did that, they started winning. And they went on to win, what, 65 games and then win their first title. They won three with that combination. So Cartwright was the guy on that team who provided these qualities and provided that kind of leadership. And I'd never noticed, never noticed him before, had any idea that was what was happening. All right, so let's describe some of these traits. And you've mentioned some of them, but we can go into depth that great team leaders or great team captains have. The first one you talk about is doggedness. So what's going on there? What is it about a player's doggedness and not necessarily their talent that helps the whole team be better? That was probably the least surprising trait to me. I mean, I figured, yeah, if you're going to be a great leader, you're going to have that kind of relentless competitive nature. But they took it to a level that I had never seen, which is that, they didn't. It didn't matter if they were winning by ten goals or, or they were down by fifty points. They had one speed in competition, and they always played at that speed. And Carlos Puyol, I mentioned of Barcelona, was amazing because they'd be beating some terrible team ten to nothing. He's running around like it's the Champions League final, you know, and his teammates are laughing at him. But there was that intensity. But beyond it, it was this ability to continue to play no matter what and to play at that incredible level. And the best example, the one that really just turn my head to to the power of relentlessness was was this guy Buck Shelford. And he was the captain of the New Zealand All Blacks, which is this incredible rugby team that that was on the list for two in two for two different units. And he was in this game against France and they were the French were out to get them and they were going after Shelford. I mean they knocked out three of his teeth. They punched him in the head they they knocked him cold at one out cold at one point and also kicked him in the groin in the middle of this game. And this is pretty gruesome, but after the game they lost. It was the last match they would lose for for three years under his leadership. But after the game he took off his uniform and took off his trunks and and he hadn't just been kicked in the groin during this game. He'd been spiked, and the spikes of the French players' cleats had ripped open his scrotum. Oh, God. And, like, <laughs> I know it's gruesome, but a really important 
piece of anatomy was hanging out. I mean, there was blood all over his thighs. It was a mess, right? He had played through that. You know, he just kept playing. And, you know, he became this sort of overnight folk hero legend in, in rugby. But that kind of shows you, like, there was something almost maniacal about the way that they played and how tough they were. And what I discovered looking at a lot of behavioral psychology is that effort is contagious. And, you know, effort is the one, the perception that someone is putting in a full 100% effort is the one thing that can make everybody on a team work harder and work harder as a team than they would on the same task individually. So there's a contagious effect. And I believe all these captains, because they were so relentless, made everyone around them better. Right. Yeah. You talk about social loafing. Typically when we work in groups, like if you did a group project in school, you, you know, this firsthand, you typically like, ah, someone else got it. Right. Um, (laughs) Right. Yeah. That's crazy. It's so true. It's called social loafing. It's been, it's this phenomenon they've proven over and over, which is if you have people do a task individually and then together as a group, they work about, you know, for 70% as hard, you know, in the group setting, it's just human nature, which is why there's not, it's so hard to find great teams because you're not, teams aren't supposed to be good because by definition, when we get together as human beings, we're inclined to not work as hard as we would if it was just us doing it. So that needs to be counteracted. And if you want to sustain success, I mean, over a long period of time, I mean, you need someone with that incredible relentlessness to keep, uh, to keep them from having, you know, one bad game, one bad night, and the whole thing can end, you know? And that's, uh, I saw that over and over. It's a great team captain's lead by example with the doggedness. So this is a counterintuitive trait that I thought was interesting was that great team captains test the limits of rules. So that was interesting since, you know, as a kid in high school, we always thought like, Oh, the, the captain of the football team, it's like the guy's like the paragon of good sports, good sportsmanship. But you found no, like good captains are actually kind of, they kind they kind of play dirty. So what's going on there? This one is tough to explain to people. And it took me so long to get to the bottom of it because you're right. These captains would do things that were, really not cool. You know, they were either kind of aggressive or even violent, or they would, you know, really break the rules or push them to the limit. And, you know, Tom Brady is a great example with deflate gate, right? I mean, that <laughs> alleged behavior, right? But when I saw that, I was like, that fit the pattern perfectly. So here's the thing about sports. We look at the rules of sports and we hold them in the same regard that we do the rules of society, you know, but they're not like the rules of society. I mean, the rules are you don't break under any circumstances, but in sports, the rules are kind of subjective. And, you know, they're, it's not about whether or not you're breaking the rule. It's what the referee says, you know, it's what happens in the moment, whether you can get away with it. So these captains, because Here's the thing. They didn't care if people thought they were dirty players. They didn't care what people genuinely didn't care what people thought of them. All they cared about was the collective outcome for the whole team. And it's hard to to realize that. But when you feel that way and you don't care about the public view, your attitude on the field is what can I get away with? What's the ultimate edge of what I can actually get away with? in this situation. And these captains were incredibly good at finding that line and playing right up to it. Sometimes they crossed it, but most of the time they, they were intelligent enough to know like where the line was. And they would, they would use that kind of subjectivity that's built into the rules and sports to the advantage of the team. So that's where the, uh, the Cuban team 
really, or like the captain of the Cuban team showed this trait. Yeah, I mean, in spades. And it was really amazing to watch. So the Cubans, as I said, were this dominant team. And in, in uh, the Atlanta Olympics in 96, they were six years into this run, but they were really struggling. I mean, they were just down and defeated and, and tired. And they lost a couple matches early in the, uh, in the tournament in the Olympics, and it looked like they were done, right? So the captain of this team was this woman, Maria Luis, who's incredible. She's only five foot nine, and she was a striker. And most Olympic strikers are 6'2", six, 6'3", six, but she just had this incredible vertical leap, and she was terrific. But anyway, she was the captain of this team. And they had to play Brazil. They made it to the semifinals. They had to play Brazil, probably the, the other best team in the world, kind of their heir apparent for, for the best team in the world. And they knew that Brazil could beat them even if they were playing at their best. So she came up with a strategy. It was a strategy of desperation, but she knew she had to do something. And the strategy was this. Look, volleyball, there's always a little bit of trash talk going on, but there's no specific rule about what you can and can't do. So she decided, all right, well, we're going to see how far we can push this. And she told her teammates that when they got on the court, they had to start shouting insults at the Brazilians. And they were like, well, what kind of insults? She's like, the worst thing you could say to another woman, <laughs> like whatever, just empty the tank, right? So they start shouting these awful things at the Brazilians. The Brazilians, you know, complain. They got a yellow card the, for doing it. But, you know, over time, it didn't really have an effect at first. But by the match got really close. And by the fifth set, you could just see the Brazilians, were, it, they were in their heads. They were mad. They were overplaying. They were getting too un, uh, unhappy when they made mistakes. You just see the psychology working on them. And finally, the... The Cubans beat them. And right after the uh, match, I mean, the tempers were flaring. And a couple of players in the tunnel bumped into each other, and they just started throwing punches. And this turned into an all-on brawl like for, for you know, 30 minutes. They had to call the Atlanta police to break it up, and it was a huge embarrassment for the Olympics and for volleyball. So I was like, wait a minute. You know, this doesn't work. Like, how could this – how's that leadership, right? That's not leadership. That sounds like thuggish. You know, I went to Havana and talked to Maria Elise about this, and she was fascinating. She's like, you know, she she said it's it's a show, it's a tool, it's something you have to pull out. Sometimes you have to do aggressive things in order to pull your team through, and it's not done out of spite. It's done with a purpose. It's not because you want to hurt someone. It's because you're trying to accomplish a larger purpose. And I talked to her teammates, and this is when it really dawned on me that this was a, a tool, it was a tactic, because they said that during the fight, there was only one player who was trying to break it up, and it was Maria Luis. So she went from that aggression in the name of winning, but as soon as they'd won, it was off. She switched it off, and she was actively trying to stop this fight from happening. And that's that's the difference. I mean, they don't carry it off the court. They might be aggressive and uh, test, test the rules in competition, but off the field, all of them were incredibly quiet. That none of them got ever got in any trouble. They were incredibly law-abiding people, um, and it's a hard distinction to make. And I don't, I'm not advocating this kind of play, but I think it's important for people who are managing teams and for coaches to understand where it's coming from. What's the motivation for doing it? Is it to win, or is it done out of hatred or animosity? And you know, I think the more that we understand that behavior and where it's coming from, like the, the more likely you are to make good decisions about leadership. Right. And I mean, even for people who aren't involved in sports, like I think what this ag- over aggressiveness, like testing, pushing the limits 
of the rules, it's, I mean, what that trait they're displaying is like disagreeableness, right? But disagreeableness in the purpose of a greater cause. Um, so I think oftentimes there's a lot of leaders who, who think they're leaders and they want everything to be kind of kumbaya, but because everything's all, everyone's trying to be so calm and nice, like you can't, you don't push yourself. Like you, everything's just, everything, everything kind of stays the same because you're not willing to engage in conflict and confront boundaries. And that's where all of it, like, that's where the growth happens. Yeah, absolutely. And conflict is another thing that they kept displaying, you know, and it was really important. And there's, the thing is, there's two kinds of conflict too. I mean, there's a conflict that's really personal where you just don't like someone and the conflict is driven out of personal animosity, right? But there's a kind of conflict that's called task conflict. And researchers have done a lot of studies that show that on teams that perform together in real time, you know, with a real outcome, like a sports team, on those teams, task conflict is essential. You have to argue about the process the team is undergoing in order to win. It's how you play. And arguments like that can often be uh, mistaken for personal conflict and the toxic kind of conflict, but they're not. They're, they're fundamental to uh, keeping a team together and keeping them winning. And you see them on all these great teams. I mean, you see it on the Patriots where Brady and Belichick argue. Popovich and Duncan used to argue like crazy. And now the Warriors, I mean, the, the Warriors and Steve Kerr constantly arguing about tactics and, and approach. And that's absolutely crucial for a team to sustain excellence. All right. So another kind of counterintuitive trait of great captains is we typically think of great captains as very being you know, leading from the front, being charismatic, sort of like a Michael Jordan type. But you found the great captains didn't do that. Well, how did they lead? That was a puzzling question for me because I, I didn't understand it. And it all started with Brazil because, you know, Brazil was this great soccer dynasty from 58 to 70. They won three of four World Cups. And, you know, I went to, uh, I was like Pelé, right? Of course they had Pelé. And I interviewed Pelé, and to my great surprise, he was never the captain. And he said it, it was never even a question. I didn't want to be. No one thought it would be a good idea. And the captain of that team, the primary captain, was this guy, Hildorado Bellini. Have you never heard of this guy? Never scored a goal in his entire career in Brazil. He was not even close to the best player. He was a central defender, a guy who you know, did all the grunt work on the field. And that was really curious. You know, there were other examples like that. There was Carla Overbeck from the U.S. women's uh, soccer team in 99. You think of Mia Hamm and Brandi Chastain, you know, and these great stars. But no one's ever heard of her because she was, a, I like, like Bellini. She was a central defender. So the question is, how do these people lead? And I found there were two ways. One was that they actually, you can command from the back, especially in soccer, but in a lot of sports, because, you know, by, by distributing the ball to, to your teammates and, and being very unselfish, you create dependency. You know, your star teammates need you to get, get them the ball and to, and to set up plays, right? So, so that creates this dependency on that person. But beyond that, what I found that was fascinating is because they were self-effacing and they didn't care about how they were perceived. They didn't care about getting attention. They didn't care about individual accolades. Really genuinely did not care. That the, People understood that everything they did was for the common collective good of the team. So it gave them this credibility. And Carla Overbeck was a great example of this because she was like very vocal on the field. I mean, she would get right on somebody if they weren't performing well, weren't focused. And she would also be there to congratulate them when they did something well. But they all understood where it was coming from. And when it's coming from someone like that, who is not interested in themselves, has no ego at all about, about their performance, 
it, it's genuine and it actually has an impact. It resonates with everyone. So they were able to command in that way too. And it's counterintuitive, but that's what leadership really is. You know, and, and the star of the team in this system is liberated. It's liberated from the idea that they have to contribute to leadership. And they're liberate, they can do it as they want to, but they're, they're relieved of that burden. And they love, everyone loves this player because that's the person who's ultimately going to run into the burning building you know, when no one else will. And knowing that person is there creates this comfort. And that's what Brady was talking about. It's not that difficult. You do your job so everyone else can do their job. That was what I think he was saying, which is on a team that's functioning right, everyone knows what their responsibilities are, but they also know that someone's got their back. And that, in all these cases, was the captain. So kind of, you kind of mentioned that, but the way captains or the great captains communicate, it's not, they're not giving rah-rah locker room speeches. Like it's very subtle and it happens oftentimes like when no one's even paying attention or, or no one else, or the eyeballs aren't on them. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't believe this when I, when I found it, but I started, cause you know, you think of how do you motivate a team and there's the Hollywood version, which is you give a big speech and, you know, we know about great coaches speeches and you know, captains who were, are supposed to have a silver tongue, right? And that's how you motivate people. And I was shocked because not a single one of these captains, not one of them liked giving speeches. Some of them never did it. I mean, they just did not do it. Or, or they said they tried it once and it was such a joke, they never did it again. And, you know, I, I, I didn't understand how you could possibly motivate a team that way. And the person I really decided to, to focus on was Tim Duncan. Because Tim Duncan of the Spurs, the San Antonio Spurs, and this is a you know an incredible dynasty that won for so long. I mean, no one will ever match that the length of their of their winning streak. So Duncan, you've seen Duncan give interviews, right? I right. mean, he's just like a blob. I mean, he's he's no emotion or charisma or anything. And I didn't understand how someone like that could motivate teammates. So I spent a lot of time watching them play and watching them practice and. What I noticed about Duncan was he actually communicates a lot, but not in the way you would think. He he was always working the perimeter of the, of the floor. He was always talking to somebody one-on-one very intensely, and he listened as much as he would talk. He would use gestures and body language and, and his eyes to really communicate what he was saying. And it was, a, it was this constant communication. And the Spurs are famous for how much they talk. And you see this. You see them on the bench. You see them on the floor. They're constantly talking. It's like an open monologue. And more than any other NBA team at the time. And that is what happens when you have someone like that who's the leader who is circulating. Because it gets everyone talking. Everyone feels you know, like they can be heard but also more accountable. And all the problems that come up over the course of the game are addressed in the moment. Nothing festers. Everything is open for a conversation. And that kind of communication is the the same kind that has been proven to be really effective in business teams. There's always someone in there who circulates, and they call it the charismatic connector. It's the person who brings everyone together by talking individually, not, not giving big speeches, but you know, one-on-one communication about the task at hand. And that's that's the same leadership style that Duncan used. It's all the same leadership style that Yogi Berra used. And Yogi Berra, if you think about Yogi Berra, was famous for being inarticulate, right? I mean, I can't imagine him giving a locker room speech, right? right. But that's what he did. He worked, he worked with everyone. It's how he communicated. 
constantly, democratically, and intensely one-on-one with people in the moment. And that's the key. You just need someone who's willing to put that kind of time in. And it's not the perception of, of motivation that we, that we lean to. So yeah, that's not your stereotypical leader stuff displaying here. How, how do these captains get selected? Like, do people, do these guys like actively seek after the captainship or like, do their teams just naturally decide, no, you are the leader and gravitate towards them? It's funny. So many of these teams, I think they wound up with getting these people as leaders almost accidentally because a lot of them were obscure and they came from places where there wasn't a great tradition of winning and there, there weren't great talents. And, and so the person who assume the leadership accidentally was actually the right person for the job. But no, in most cases that these people were chosen by, by the coaches or, or by upper management and given that, that designation, there were cases, there was one case, Barcelona, where the captain was elected. And it's very funny. you you asked if they sought the job and it was very funny because Carlos Puyol was elected the captain unanimously by his teammates, except for, except for one vote, which was Carlos Puyol. He's like, didn't think he should vote for himself. He didn't think it was appropriate. And most of them didn't, they didn't pursue the captaincy for prestige. They didn't believe they were entitled to it. A lot of them didn't believe they were worthy of the job. But the reason that they wanted it was in the end, because they felt responsible for the collective effort and for the, for the common goal. It wasn't about their own advancement or, or appreciation for their ability. It was, it was a, because they knew that they were the one who was going to, as I said, run into the burning building. They were going to do that awful job, that bit of grunt work that no one else wanted to do. And they were, you know, they saw it as a burden. They didn't see it as a, as a, honor. I mean, they didn't care if they had the designation or not, honestly. They, they really wanted to, to serve the, the common purpose, and, and they knew how hard that was, and that's not glamorous, and it's not fun, and that they wouldn't get credit, but all they really cared about in the end was winning, and that was enough for them. Right. I think, I mean, I've even seen that in my own life. Oftentimes, the leader that everyone looks to isn't the guy with the title, <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. No, you see that in sports, too. I mean, you see you know, Roy Keane, who was a great captain at Manchester United, said this about captaincy. He said, you know, there's the guy who the public sees as the face of the team and the leader of the team. But, you know, inside the clubhouse, it can be radically different. I mean, the, the actual hierarchy of the team can be completely different. And that person can be really a marginal figure inside the team. And, yeah, you see that. I've seen it, too. I mean, I started reassessing all the teams I've been on. You know, and, and and finding these people that I hadn't noticed before, you know, who were playing that role very quietly and were content just that the group succeeded and didn't expect or, or you know, yearn for any kind of acknowledgement. And and those are hard people to find. That's the problem. Right. That's why we don't have a lot of them because they're not obvious and you wouldn't notice them if you're not looking for them. Right. Because the people who end up in leadership positions usually are the ones seeking after them. And But the, the irony is usually they're not the one, the good ones for the job, the best ones for the job. Yeah, it's true. You know, it's usually, especially these days, I mean, it's, it's really, most teams are either de-emphasizing captaincy or, or else they're you know, they're just, they're just giving it to their best player or it's become something that gets wrapped up in contract negotiations, you know, like it's a perk that they throw in and it's not really based on how they actually behave in the team setting. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's weird. I mean, it's so easy to make a mistake and it's so easy to, it's such an easy thing to, to 
ignore and such an easy thing to mess up. And, you know, if you mess it up, it's really hard to undo it. So why, why are captaincies on the decline? I thought that was interesting. I didn't know that, that fewer teams, that more and more teams are using team captains. What's going on there? What's the, the thinking behind that? Yeah, it's, you know, there are a lot of, there are a few different things, but it really comes down to economics. And, you know, the main difference now is if you think about the last 20 years, I mean, the amount of money that's poured into organized sports, you know, at the professional level everywhere. I mean, it's astounding. And the real beneficiaries, as it becomes more of a commercial enterprise, I mean, it used to be, you just had to win. That's how you made money. You, know, you won. You had to win. But now, you know, the economics are different. You really need to put on a good show. You know, because most of the money is coming from TV and there's an element of like making sure that you're putting on a good show. And as a result, you know, it's the sports business is more like the entertainment business. You're, you know, it's the marquee names. And on most teams, the marquee names are the coach and the star player. And that has become a different model. So there's this like there are these two power centers inside the team. There's the big star and the coach. And, you know, those people are in a way kind of battling for control of the team. That's kind of become a competition. What's happened is like you squeezed out the middleman and all these great captains, because most of them weren't stars, they were those middle managers. They were the people who stood between the players and management and they had minds of their own and independence and some autonomy and they could take the best of whatever the players were doing and thinking and, and the best of what management wanted and they could fuse them together and actually act out and find a strategy that worked. Uh, they were also the people who held the team together when things were bad. And that's that's the lesson not just for sports, but for management. Because you know, middle management's kind of not cool in business right now. I mean, you have founder culture. You have this idea that you want the founders and CEOs of a company to talk more directly to the star talent. But when things go bad, that's when it falls apart because, you know, managers overfunction. They're not on the field. They can't actually do anything. So they start to come up with bad ideas and overfunction. And the stars, you know, they start looking at their resume and thinking, maybe, you know, maybe I should just skip this place. I mean, it's falling apart. It's those middle managers who care about the team's outcome and not their own. And those are the people who in those moments will hold the team together. And they use these traits that I've described in order to do that. And I see it over and over again. It's when everything's about to fall apart. That's when leadership matters. It doesn't matter when everything's going great, you know, or your stock charts, you know, straight up or, or your team's won 25 you know, games in a row. It's when things start to go bad. And that's when you need these people. I love it. Well, Sam, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book? Well, I have a website, bysamwalker.com, which has more information. And um, I'm also on Twitter at Sam Walkers and LinkedIn and Facebook. And you can read my columns on leadership in the Wall Street Journal, which, which just started a few weeks ago on the journal site. That's awesome. Well, Sam Walker, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Brett. My guest today is Sam Walker. He's the author of the book, The Captain Class. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Find more information about his work at buysamwalker.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash captain class, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the podcast and got something out of it, I appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.